But today, I want to share with all of us today, because I believe it's important. This is, I believe, one of the most important, if not the most important message in all of Christianity. Not my sermon, per se, but the message that today stands for. What it is that we're celebrating. Today, I want to continue. Today is the fourth message that we have started out at the beginning of the year in contending for the faith. And today I want to preach a message entitled, The One Event That Demands a Response. The One Event That Demands a Response. There are so many events that have taken place in history. When you read history, history is rich. History is full of wonderful uh, stories. History is full of uh, difficult stories. It's full of nightmares, in fact. But nonetheless... We understand the historical aspect of the resurrection. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ is is the bottom line of Christianity. In fact, if you don't have a resurrection, you don't have Christianity. This is why it has been attacked over the centuries of time that there was no resurrection, that there is no resurrection. In fact, we think it's a sort of a newer kind of attack on Christianity. It's not. In fact, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15, and I'd like you to turn there. 1 Corinthians 15 in response to the fact that there were people who were attacking the idea of a resurrection. But I'm here to let you know today that there is hope because of what Jesus Christ not only did on the cross, but also for the fact that he came out of the tomb. Today, I am so grateful today that we serve a living God. We don't serve a dead God. We don't serve, we're not in a dead, dry religion. If you came in here today thinking you're going to hear just dead, dry stuff, I'm here to let you know today there is something living and active about what it is that we want to read to you today. In a moment, we'll get to 1 Corinthians 15, but just hold your Bibles there for a moment. But there are events in Christianity that demand certain levels of response. At Christmas time, we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And as we we do, we, we put up the lights and the decorations and all kinds of things. And, you know, it's such a, a wonderful time of the year, such a great time for many people. And yet, when you look in Scripture, his birth demanded only a minimal response. There were only a few that went to see the baby Jesus. A little bit later on, the wise men went to observe as well as they followed the star. But for the most part, other than the angelic hosts that appeared to the shepherds out on the hillside, it didn't really demand a collective response. You fast forward about 30 years and you get into the ministry of Jesus. Now you're confronted with his teachings. Some of the things that he said, it rocked the very foundation of of the religious leaders of the day. They, They hated him. They wanted to get rid of him. They didn't like what he said. He pointed out their inconsistencies. He pointed out their hypocrisies. His ministry demanded a little bit more of a response, especially when you get into the miracles. How could they deny that certain men and women that he touched received their sight. And all of a sudden now after being born 
with, with an impediment that kept them from being able to walk. Now they're running and leaping and, and they can walk and they can see. And even on a couple of occasions, uh, uh, um, a son's uh, or a, a man's child died and they're in the midst of a funeral procession and Jesus raises that one back to life. And who can forget Lazarus? John chapter 11, Jesus is standing in front of the tomb of Lazarus. He had died and Martha and Mary are there and they're so, so grief stricken and heartbroken that, that Lazarus was in the tomb and now Jesus stands in front of the tomb and says to Martha, <coughs> says, I am the resurrection and the life. Certainly when people saw Lazarus kind of hop out of that tomb because he had bound, been bound by grave clothes, that demanded a response. But what if that one who said, I am the resurrection and the life, were to die? What if the one who had reached out and touched Jairus' daughter after she had been dead and brought her back to life, what if that one who had stood at Lazarus' tomb and proclaimed, I am the resurrection and the life, now the Bible lets us know as we get into John 19 and some of the other later chapters in the Gospels, we read about the crucifixion of Jesus and how Jesus is hanging on that cross and his life is ebbing out of him and he is about to die. What kind of response do you think would happen within the hearts of his followers? The Bible lets us know that many of them scattered. The women stood before the cross heartbroken. They stood there shaking their heads, wondering what had happened. He said all of these wonderful things. He did all of these wonderful things. And now here he is dying on the cross. You can imagine the disillusionment of people's hearts. You can imagine how many people thought, but, but he said he was the resurrection and the life, but now the life is dying. What, what do we do with this? How do we handle this? But you get to early Sunday morning. It's like what one preacher in West Philadelphia, Tony Campolo's pastor. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of Dr. Tony Campolo. But he tells of one preacher, his pastor, he got up and for an hour stood there and preached on the topic, it's Friday. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday. I, I can't repeat that. I can't duplicate that. But you get to Sunday morning and now, now all of a sudden something changes. There is what we now know as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The story did not end on the cross. This is why for us as Christians we have an empty cross and we have an empty tomb. We don't look at Jesus as being still on the cross dying for our sins. No, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews that he did that once for all. You don't ever have to go back there. You don't, there, there is no need for a duplication of the crucifixion. He did it one time, and that one time was enough. But then the Bible lets us know that he came out of that tomb. And for two groups of people today, you need to know that's good news. Those two groups of people, first of all, are the skeptics. Today I want to share a little bit for those who might be slightly skeptical about the resurrection. 
I get that you might be. <clears throat> I understand that you might be slightly skeptical about, about this whole idea of a resurrection and especially something that took place 2,000 years ago. We put our trust in the recorded record and I'm going to show you why it is that we do. How important it is that we look at the Bible and we believe what was written. This was not written by a group of men who had an axe to grind. This was not written by a group of people who decided to make some kind of fairy tale mythological stories up to be able to line their pockets. That's actually one theory about the resurrection. That the disciples of the apostles did it so that they could make money. What a terrible thing to say. But nonetheless, they believe that. 1 Corinthians 15. Starting at verse 3. And reading down through to verse 8. The Bible says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That is absolutely essential. Paul's terminology here says, What I have passed on to you is of first importance. We don't, we don't give or take on this. This is not a non-negotiable in the Christian faith. He says this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter. That he appeared... To Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Most of whom, Paul says, are still living. Though some have fallen asleep or have died. Then he appeared to James. That is the same James who is the brother of Jesus. Then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. I understand today if you're slightly skeptical about this. Because other than Christ, we have no human reference. We have nowhere to go back to and to look at and to say, this happened and that happened and this one came back to life and that one came back to life. So surely there is a resurrection of the dead. No, we have Jesus Christ. But I'm here to let you know Jesus Christ was no ordinary man. He was no ordinary individual. Last Sunday we talked about the fact that Jesus is God. He was fully divine and also at the same time fully human. And in his humanity he died on the cross, went into the tomb, but on that third day by the power of the Holy Spirit was raised back to life. In fact, Paul says it this way. There are a number of historical facts that we need to reconcile with. Let me just jump ahead a little bit and I'll come back to one other thing. And it is the eyewitnesses. The Bible says this, jump down a little bit into verse 6. The Bible says, after that he appeared to not five people, not even 50 people, but 500 people at one time time after the resurrection 500 people at one time Paul says and I believe it's important for any of us to note that when history is being written 
It is important that when that history is being written, there are enough people alive who can look back on that history and say, I was there. I remember that. I lived during that time. I'm familiar with that. That's why the history books are always being revived. Why? Because believe it or not, the 90s are history. (laughs) It's hard to believe, isn't it? We look back at the 90s and we think, that was just yesterday. But no, they're history now. And those those decades, that decade is appearing now in our history books. The students in school are studying that. And you know what? Most of us can look at that history and we can say, I was there. I remember that. I know that. I understand that. Paul was saying that many of the people that Jesus appeared to after the resurrection, Paul says, are still alive. They are still around. In fact, what he was saying to the Corinthian church was, fellas, if you don't believe me, go check it out. Go check out my story. Let's, let's, you can find this one and that one. And then he begins to name some of the apostles one by one. The Bible says this, that, that Jesus appeared to Peter and to the 11. Peter would have still been alive at this point when Paul was writing to the Corinthian church. Peter was still on his own circuit preaching. And, and, and planting the seed of the gospel. So Peter says, look, it's to Peter and to the other 11 uh, disciples as well. Jesus appeared to them as well. Not only that, the Bible says that he appeared to James. Get this. James was the brother of Jesus, the physical earthly brother of Jesus. He wrote the book of James. We have the book of James entitled by his name in the Bible, in the New Testament. But James was an unbeliever until after the resurrection. Imagine that. Jesus' younger brother James didn't believe that Jesus was the Savior, was the Messiah, was the one who had come into the world to save his people from their sins until after Jesus came out of the tomb. Look, folks, it's not the cross that stirs faith within the heart of an individual. It is an empty tomb that causes us to stand up and demand a response that we have to respond to what it is that has been written. And the Bible goes on and it says that he appeared to Mary Magdalene and to others. Mary Magdalene had been a woman who had uh, a very uh, bad past. She was somebody who, you know, you look back at and you say... Now, that's somebody who's been around the block. That's somebody who, you know, who knows about life, and she knew it the hard way. But Jesus delivered her. Jesus brought her out. He gave her a new hope and a new life, and the Bible lets us know that he appeared to these ladies as well after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, the wonderful thing about the cross is it says this, there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female. He elevates the genders. He elevates the races. He elevates the nationalities all to the same level. There isn't anybody who can stand here and say, I'm better than. Why? Because of what Jesus has done when he came out of the tomb. He elevates us to the same place and the same level of humanity that is in need of a savior. But there is also a couple other facts that the skeptic, I believe, needs to reconcile with. And it is this. That the Bible records for us that the stone was rolled away. Now we think of a stone, we think of some kind of a large rock. And yet this rock, it seems, weighed in excess of one and a half to two tons. That is anywhere from 3,000 to 4,000 pounds. 
it would have taken the small legion of, of uh, men who Roman, Roman soldiers to roll that stone in front of that tomb. And there the Bible says that they put the seal on that tomb. That seal was not to be broken. They had guards surrounding that tomb. But I want you to notice some of the terminology that is used in Scripture. Mark chapter 16 records for us, and it uses a, a, a particular Greek word to describe the position of the stone after the resurrection. And that Greek word means to roll something up and incline. Now we know this. A few of the ladies who came to the tomb couldn't have done it. In fact, they had a conversation among themselves. They said, who's going to roll the stone away so that we can go in and we can anoint the body of Jesus with the spices and embalm him? Who's going to do that for us? They were worried about the stone. <clears throat> and yet, the Bible indicates to us, there is every indication, that this stone was rolled up and inclined. But John chapter 20 records and uses a different Greek word that indicates that the stone was actually something that was picked up and carried away. These guys couldn't have picked that up all by themselves. They couldn't have picked it up and moved it to where it was. There had to be a heavenly body, a big old angel that came down and moved that stone far away from the tomb. And Jesus came out of that tomb. I'm here to let you know today, you say, well, that doesn't really convince me. I understand that maybe today I might not convince you, but I trust that the Holy Spirit will in fact speak to your heart and minister to your heart and convince you that today Jesus Christ changed history, not when he came into the world, but when he came out of the tomb. Jesus Christ demands a response from you today. I don't demand a response. Jesus does. Because if in fact he is resurrected from the dead according to what he has said, according to what is recorded in scripture, and all the language indicates that it demands a response. Nobody's ever done that before. You need to know today that he did it so that you, the Bible says, could be justified. And that is where I want to head to next. You see, the wonderful thing is, he is interested in turning skeptics into saints. Amen. He is interested in turning skeptics into saints. You say, but wait a minute, don't talk about saints. You know, that's only a select few. No, actually, the Bible seems to indicate that when you come to Jesus Christ and you give your heart to him, you are a saint. That's what the Bible says. I realize tradition might teach you something different than that, but the Word of God is true. And the Word of God tells us and lets us know that when we come to Him, we become His. Right. Now, Amen. how does it demand a response for the saint? It is simple. Let's jump down to verses 17 through 20 in 1 Corinthians 15. And the Bible says this. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 17 through 20. Now here it is. Paul is writing, and he is writing in defense of the attack that had already come upon the church, that there was no resurrection of the dead. But the Bible says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. 
Here it is. You are still in your sin. If there is no resurrection, then Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Your faith is empty. It's pointless. We're wasting our time here this morning. That's what Paul is saying. You are wasting your time giving yourself to something that in essence is not true. But Paul says your faith is fatal, futile. You're, you are still in your sins. Verse 18 says, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost, gone forever. Verse 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. We are to be the object of sympathy, Paul says. If we only have hope in this life, well, we understand what this life brings. This life can be rough, but our hope is not based in this life alone. Verse 20. But Christ, Paul says, has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Think about the implications of your faith if there was no resurrection. Think about it for a minute. And we already, we already just briefly mentioned it. Paul says you have futile faith. It's profitless. It's empty. It's pointless. You, you are wasting your time living in the light of what this word reveals. Without a resurrection, it's all pointless. Without Jesus coming out of the tomb. If Jesus went in the tomb and never came out, this is empty. You say, but wait a minute. He taught some wonderful, wonderful things. He taught some really great things. You know, we, we, we repeat it. I, I heard one morning when I was in school with, with Jamie, I remember I was going to, uh, uh, on a field trip one morning and I remember her principal coming on and he, he repeated the golden rule with this, the golden rule comes right out of the Bible. It's the Bible, the golden rule. We love the golden rule. But without the resurrection, it's pointless. It's meaningless. Without Jesus coming out of the tomb, what he said essentially amounts to a big pack of lies. Listen, Paul says this, you are still in your sin. Paul essentially says that without the, the resurrection, the cross was meaningless. The blood that he shed on Calvary had no effect. We're going to see how this is so in just a moment. There's one verse of scripture that's so wonderful and powerful. You've got to see this about the resurrection, but we'll, and we'll get there in a moment. But without, without the fact that Jesus rose from the grave... The cross has no effect. The blood of Jesus to wipe all of our sins away has no effect on your life. He says, you are still in your sins. And then Paul kind of brings it all to a head and says this. If only in this life we have hope in Christ, we're to be pitied more than all men. He says, you know what? You're the most miserable of all. You're a, you're a miserable lot of people for believing in something that is absolutely false. And yet, in verse 20, he says, but wait a minute, folks. This isn't the way it is. This isn't the way it is. Let's think about the implications of your faith with the resurrection. Verse 20, but Christ 
has indeed been raised from the dead. So what he goes back and essentially what he is saying is, first of all, verse 17, your faith is not pointless. Your faith is not empty. Your faith is not futile. You have something of substance in your life. You have something to help you to not only live, but also live eternally. And not only that, you are not still in your sin. You have been washed you have been cleansed and you have been bought with a price. You have been freed from sin because the Bible says he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. You can know today you don't have to live under the dictates of your own flesh, your own desires, but now you can have the Holy Spirit ruling and reigning in your heart and your life. And not only that, he, he indicates also you're not the most miserable. You're not to be pitied. In fact, in this particular case, you're to be envied because you have hope. You have hope. There are so many people today who are hopeless. Listen, I understand this life has so many wonderful experiences, so many great things to look forward to. I enjoy this life. I enjoy the times that we have with our family and we have with our friends and all of those things. There are great things that happen in this life. But when this life comes to a close, you need to know it does not stop. There is something else that is coming and we have a hope in him. Now, this indicates this. The fact that there is a resurrection, it changes the implications quite a bit. And it's this. His own proclamation about the resurrection is true. He spoke about his own resurrection. He spoke about the fact that he had to rise again. That he had to go by way of the cross. And he had to be buried in a tomb. And he would come out of that tomb. It lets us know that what Jesus said was absolutely true. That his claims are absolutely right. They are absolutely perfect. And they are true. Not just for those who choose to believe. But for everyone. His claims are absolutely true because there is a resurrection. Not only that, his claim that he will never leave you or forsake you is absolutely true. When he says, I'm with you always, you know what? He's with you always. He's still alive and he's with you always. Even to the end of the age, he promised his disciples just before he ascended into heaven. He says, I'm going away, but I'm going to send another comforter. And that's exactly what he did on the day of Pentecost. And the amazing thing, after Pentecost, when you find a sermon that is preached in the book of Acts, every sermon mentions the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every single one. That ought to be a challenge to me as a pastor to make sure that the resurrection becomes, uh, uh, comes higher and higher in my ministry and it comes higher and higher in our own lives that we understand that it is because of an empty tomb that we can come in today and we can worship freely and we can sense the presence of an almighty God who is there. Not only that, Here's the great thing about the resurrection. And the implications of the fact that it took place is this. We are declared righteous because of his resurrection. Listen to Romans. I'd like you to turn over there. You've got to see this verse. You've got to see this verse of scripture. This is so wonderful. The Bible says this. In verse 25, chapter 4, verse 25. Romans chapter 4, verse 25. 
He was delivered over to death. Why? For our sins. Our sins drove him to the cross. But the good news is, is that sin didn't dictate how things ended up. But the Bible says, and was raised to life for our justification. What does that mean? That big word, justification. Somebody once said that justification is that God looks at you just as if I had never sinned. Imagine that. You know, most of us, we walk around with a little, you know, a little black book of wrongs that have been done to us, don't we? You know, we got a little bit of a record of all the people who've hurt us and offended us, everybody who has done something to us, everybody who has made our life just a little bit more miserable. And yet I'm here to let you know God has no such book. In fact, the Bible lets us know that when you come to him in faith and you receive what it is that he did for you on the cross and as a result of the resurrection, the Bible lets us know that he wipes the slate clean. And it lets us know that he removes our sin. We don't, he doesn't hold it against you. I don't care what your past is like. Listen, your past might be so dreadful. It might be horrible. It might be the worst kind of a horror story that you could ever present. And it would make people cringe and make them wonder how in the world you are even still alive. But I'm here to let you know the grace of God does so much more for you and I. He was raised for our justification. He looks at you as though you had never, ever sinned. That is a wonderful position to be in. And I don't know if we're really getting it and comprehending it today. But that position is a position I want to be in because I know what I've done. I can remember my past. I know what it is that I did when I was a teenager, when I was a young man, when I was even in, into adulthood and, and, still, and trying to make an effort in ministry and work for the Lord. There were many times I failed so miserably I had to get on my face and repent before God and say, God, you've got to forgive me. You've got to help me. And I'm here to let you know that every time because of the resurrection, he justifies us. He looks at us as though we had never, ever sinned. The Bible lets us know this, that he lives to make intercession for us. You don't need to turn there, but listen to Hebrews 7 and verse 25. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. That position is that he stands as a mediator between you and the Father. And he is there on your behalf. He is there going to bat for you. He is there to let you know and to let me know that he is on our side. Listen, God is not out to get you. God is not out to, to hurt you. God is not out to destroy you. God is not out to do any of those things. He is for you. He has gone to every length to let you know how much he really really loves you how much John writes has the father lavished on us the love of God in that he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins brothers and sisters we're in this place today because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ 
He loves you so much that He didn't stay on the cross. He didn't stay in the tomb. He loves you so much that He rose from the grave. That's what Easter is about. I was shocked to hear what Julian mentioned during worship. 52% of Americans don't know what Easter is about. Listen, Easter is about the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that He came out of the grave. He came out of the tomb. I want to end with this and close with this. The Bible says this down in verse 58 of 1 Corinthians 15. There is a reason that you and I can continue to keep going and keep working for him and keep sharing the love of Christ. Keep sharing the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul writes, because of all of these things, anytime you see the word therefore, it's there for something. You got to find out what it's there for. Therefore, he says in verse 58, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Why? Because there is a resurrection from the dead. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. There is a power of resurrection of the resurrection that will come into the heart and life of individuals that you will share the gospel with. You might not be able to make it happen, but I'm here to let you know the Holy Spirit. Somebody once called the Holy Spirit the hound of heaven because he's always, he's like that bloodhound, always on the trail of somebody, always going after somebody. He's hounding them. Even in the night hour when nobody's talking to them, but they've heard the gospel and they've heard it and it's coming to their minds and they can't get rid of it. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the resurrection power of Jesus coming to them and showing them there is a better way than the way that they're going. Brothers and sisters, today I'm here to let you know that we serve a risen Savior. He is alive. He is not dead. And because he is alive, we have hope today, not only in this life, but also at the end of life. The end of life might come sooner rather than later. But whenever it comes, you don't need to be afraid because the Bible lets us know these wonderful things. Listen to this. And with this, I close. Listen, I tell you a mystery. Verse 51. We will not all sleep. But we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable. And we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable. And the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. Then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Stand to your feet right now and let's give God praise.